I'm grateful that Harvard has been so open to my lifelong um, fascination with the relationship between religion and politics, which goes back to having been raised in my dear hometown of Fall River, where the links among party, church, and union uh, were part of everyday life. And I'm happy to welcome my sister, Lucy Ann Dion Thomas, here tonight. Uh, she understands exactly what I am talking about. Um, as I try to note to my students here, it's always important for scholars of religion to be aware that the practical work of winning votes and elections uh, uh, in this work, fine theological distinctions are often lost. Um, Reinhold Niebuhr tells the story of Al Smith confronting anti-Catholic prejudice in the 1928 presidential campaign. Um, and he had to answer for every papal encyclical ever issued. And Niebuhr says that at a meeting, a frustrated Smith turned to his aides and said, will somebody just tell me one thing? What the hell is an encyclical? <laughs> <laughs> and the moral is that what we think is going on in the dialogue between religion and politics is not always what is actually uh, going on. And John F. Kennedy uh, thought in 1960 that he had proven that a Catholic could be elected once he won the West Virginia primary. Um, there was a fairly obvious religious test there. Hubert Humphrey, his main opponent, uh, subtly used the song, Give Me That Old Time Religion, as his campaign song against Kennedy. Um, and so Kennedy had put this aside, and then one day the Vatican issues a statement suggesting that the church indeed had a right to instruct the faithful how to vote. And it opened up the controversy all over again, and Kennedy burst out, now I know why Henry VIII started his own church. <laughs> and I will not, I will stay out of the Henry VIII controversy this evening. And finally, there's Barack Obama, whose opponents claimed he was a Muslim when he was, in fact, a Christian. And then they later admitted he was a Christian, uh, but he found out during the controversy over comments made by his pastor, Jeremiah Wright, that they were saying, well, if Obama is indeed a Christian, uh, he is a, was a Christian that, in their view, a, a Christian of a very defective sort. Um, and so Obama couldn't win either way, and I've always thought that in his struggles with both race and religion, his hero must have been Job. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, when I was asked to give the Lentz lecture, uh, Karen Grunder Whitaker provided me with a wealth of information, including pictures of a lot of old Harvard seals. Um, and thank you, Karen. Where, where are you, Karen? Thank you for so many, uh, there you are, thank you for so many uh, kindnesses and for much good advice. Her research only sent me Googling for more information on this uh, uh, lecture. Um, as uh, the dean explained, uh, Christo et Ecclesia is the theme. I came across a Harvard Crimson article published in uh, April 26, 1921, uh, saying that it was first used uh, by the Dutch, uh, and the original words, as David suggested, were veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, meaning truth for Christ and the church. Now, more conservative Christian critics of Harvard have noted over the years um, that we lifted up Veritas and dropped Christo and Ecclesia, Christ and the church. Uh, this might be uh, the cause uh, for uh, some debate. Uh, Professor Noah Fellman of the law school was in my class the other day, 
Um, and uh, he said that uh, the Divinity School owes its very existence to Harvard's uh, decision to put some distance between theological concerns and the broader, broader uh, college and later um, the university. Actually, Noah, if you know him, uh, is irrepressible. And he said, this decision by Harvard was meant to send two messages. One, that theology really mattered to Harvard, and two, that theology really didn't matter to Harvard. Um, given the diversity of religious and philosophical views represented on this campus in our country and in the world, um, the move to pure and simple veritas can be defended as a, a, an embrace of pluralism. Um, and these days, insisting that truth exists is a rather radical act. Uh, but it's also quite consistent with the Christian scripture that taught us that the truth will make you free. Uh, the implication is that truth is enough all by itself. And that the goal of Christians, the pursuit of truth, wherever it leads us and however uncomfortable it might make us feel, is an objective that can be shared across the lines of faith and by those who are skeptical of religion altogether. I'd like to hope that Mr. Lentz might agree with that. Uh, he was active in politics, I learned in my uh, research, uh, so I'd also like to hope that he'd think that right about now, we need a lot more veritas in our politics and a lot less of the alternative. Um, I've always admired the call uh, put forward by the philosopher Glenn Tinder to build what he called an attentive society, a place, as he wrote, that honors strong conviction, but where everyone acknowledges the need both to give and to receive help on the road to truth. Again, we very much need to rediscover that spirit uh, in our country, and I'm blessed to be here uh, at the Divinity School because it is a place where people give and receive help and where people work in David Hollinger's wonderful phrase in intellectual solidarity. Um, intellectual solidarity, I think, should be the goal of all great universities, a point that President Faust has made over and over again. Uh, like many here, I will deeply miss her. Uh, as I said, I'm greatly uh, grateful for all she's done for Harvard. Uh, but I have a particular debt tonight for the morning prayer she offered at Memorial Church uh, at the beginning of this uh, term uh, because it helped me clarify what I wanted to discuss. Um, she gave as good a definition of the purpose of this in any institution of higher learning when she said, we believe in the pursuit of truth as our common purpose. We believe in the power of learning and discovery to enhance human capacity and in our responsibility to develop that capacity to serve the world. We believe in the value of every member of this community and in each person's potential to contribute to the common good. Drew, you should come teach at the Divinity School in your next uh, job. Uh, universities must be open places uh, where our goal, as she put it, is to enrich, to educate, and to challenge one another. But pursuing the truth does not mean being neutral or detached in the face of hatred. Hatred, after all, is inimical to intellectual solidarity that the pursuit of truth requires. President Faust thus called out what happened this summer in Charlottesville, condemning, as she put it, the loathsome demonstrations of hatred and violence, reviving the most shameful episodes of the past, and foregrounding the very worst of what we have seen, been and regrettably still are as a nation. Now her comments go to the heart of what I want to talk about. My sense is, in a sense, an invitation to all of you to help 
uh, in a work that I think is essential at this moment in our country's history. It is to try to work out what I see as a deep tension between two objectives we must pursue simultaneously at this very difficult time. <clears throat> On the one hand, how can we fight for justice, inclusion, equality, openness, liberal democracy, and the importance of truth itself without any equivocation and without fear? All of these ideas and values are under attack now, and we must not shrink from the responsibility to battle uh, that the battle to defend them imposes on us. <clears throat> Pardon me. How can we insist that there can be no compromise with discrimination, bigotry, or hatred, and no letting up in the battle to push back against autocracy, authoritarianism, and lawlessness? How can we seek to follow Martin Luther King Jr., who drew on the prophet Amos, to declare that our objective should be to hasten the time when justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. But if this is one obligation of our, our current crisis imposes on us, there is another that requires a very different way of thinking and demands the mustering of different political and intellectual resources. A case can be made, and I think it's a compelling case, that our nation is as deeply divided as it has been at any time since the 1850s, a period uh, President Faust has explored throughout her career. Now, I am reluctant to make this comparison because the 1850s culminated in a civil war. Uh, but it's been said that we are in the middle right now of a cold civil war, and however you might feel about that observation, it is certainly too close to the truth for our comfort. Uh, Doug Elmendorf, and I'm very glad to see you today, and also your wonderful daughter. It's so nice of you to come this evening. Doug, the dean of the Divinity School, who I thank this evening. Uh, uh, Divinity School, I'm, I'm trying to sacralize you. The dean of the Kennedy School, thank you. Um, the, um, the, the sacred dean of the Kennedy School. Um, uh, and I know also, as we, we our kids attended uh, the same high school, and remember him from many uh, um, back-to-school nights. Um, he confronted the discord I'm talking about at last year's Campaign Managers Conference. Uh, over the years, that conference has made an enormous contribution to our understanding of politics. I finally have to admit that I am getting a little older because as an undergrad, I was involved in organizing the first such conference after the 1972 election. But however divisive the confrontation between George McGovern and Richard Nixon was, it did not require a Kennedy School dean to, what, to do what Doug had to do in a thoughtful statement in which he made clear that inviting certain speakers did not mean endorsing or legitimizing their views. Nor, he said, did it mean that we are unsure of our values. Doug was moved to quote Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes's declaration that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas. Now, Doug's plea for reasoned dialogue should be saluted, and it was certainly needed this year. The conference that followed those remarks was the most contentious in the 44-year history of these encounters. So this illustrates the second obligation I want to talk about. How can we bring together a nation that is being torn apart? How can we repair the social and political fabric of a land in which people across lines of region, party, class, and race seem incapable of understanding each other and often appear to loathe uh, each other? 
How can we promote empathy across our lines of division so that it becomes possible to identify simultaneously with Afri African Americans and immigrants struggling against a rising tide of racism and nativism, while also identifying with white working class Americans struggling with devastated living standards and shattered communities. And in the process, how can we acknowledge that a working class that is now getting a great deal of rhetorical attention, but not much real help, um, is uh, in large part African-American, Latino, and Asian, and not just white. It is a truth that the great scholar uh, here at Harvard, William Julius Wilson, pointed us to many years ago in his path-breaking work on the costs of deindustrialization. Thus the tension I am referring to in the title of the talk, how can we fight for justice while maintaining open hearts? I ask you to join in the work of grappling with this tension, both because uh, it is, as I see it, one of the most important questions before us, and also because I can only hope here uh, to begin what needs to be a serious and ongoing effort uh, at discernment leading to considered but urgent action. I told David uh, when I was talking about the subject of this speech that I propose to ask an unanswerable question and then we'll try to answer it. Uh, and that's what I'm doing here tonight. I'm gonna to turn to a variety of sources, um, but we'll come back often uh, to Martin Luther King Jr. because very few leaders engage this dilemma more effectively or productively and I am very intimidated that I am staring at one of the greatest scholars of Prof uh, Dr. King's work uh, right in front of me. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, I'll, I'll, let, me, let me start with one way to pose the question, which is how can we call out evil, injustice, and danger without assuming that all of those with whom we disagree are themselves inherently evil or dangerous? This, I think, requires faith in the power of conversion of ourselves as well as others. The late Jerry Watts, an important scholar of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, reminded us of why that great undertaking was and remains morally inspiring. Quotes, we can easily forget or underestimate the significance of the moral persuasiveness of the normative vision generated within the movement, Watts wrote, Whites were led to believe that they should act on behalf of black civil rights, and blacks were led to believe that there were sufficient numbers of white Americans of goodwill who wanted to see the racial reality altered. And because the movement was situated within a Christian moral discourse, the movement rhetorically reinforced the possibility of moral, political, the moral and political conversion of its adversaries. We thus need to renew our faith in the power of conversion, which is rooted uh, in more than just our conviction that we are upholding values and principles that are worthy of embrace, uh, that we are really preaching good news. Conversion also entails attentive listening to those with whom we disagree and empathetic understandings of the situations in which our interlocutors find themselves. It also means finding common sources of inspiration something Martin Luther King understood when he appealed to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and also to the scriptures and particularly the Exodus story. King insisted, after all, that his dream was deeply rooted in the American dream. At the Great March on Washington, he went out of his way to express solidarity with our white brothers who by their presence here today 
have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound with our freedom. But he did this without backing off from the fierce urgency of now, and he warned against dependency on the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. For King, conversion and militancy were not in conflict. They were part of the same project. Another approach is to ask how we can be righteous without being self-righteous. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr uh, put the challenge this way. The final enigma of history, he wrote, is therefore not how the righteous will gain victory over the unrighteous, but how the evil in every good and the unrighteous in the righteous can be overcome. Yes, even those who th of us who think we are righteous need to, argue, uh, need to acknowledge the limits of our own vision and the ways in which we can sometimes deceive ourselves. We need to ask if, in serving what we see as our values, we might, in fact, merely be serving our interests. And even if we are persuaded that we are, in fact, serving the good, we still need to remember that even the best of us always operate from complicated motives. Thus, one of my favorite Niebuhrisms, we must always seek the truth in our opponent's error and the error in our own truth. Note carefully what Niebuhr is saying here. He is not saying we need to abandon our convictions or our commitments. Um, we can see ourselves as speaking the truth, and we can insist that our opponent is in error. But we can do so in a way that searches for the elements of truth in our foe's arguments. Again, doing this can be seen as part of the conversion process, while also acknowledging that our own commitments often carry elements of self-interest that we don't wish to acknowledge, and an arrogance that is both a barrier to communication and a direct contradiction to our claimed egalitarianism. This is the Niborian imperative, uh, to understand the obligation to act in the world forcefully and without hesitation, while always being mindful of our own imperfections and our will to power. Niebuhr's famous description of the purpose of politics reflects these twin duties. To establish justice in a sinful world is the whole sad duty of the political order. Lastly, my friend Kathy Cavaney of Boston College, whom we are blessed to have, us, have with us tonight, offered a brilliant formulation of the problem we face in the title of her recent book, Prophecy Without Contempt. Think about that wonderful idea, prophecy without contempt. We badly need prophecy right now. Uh, we don't need and must resolutely avoid contempt toward our brothers and sisters, our fellow citizens, even when we think they are very wrong. Uh, religion's most powerful uh, public role, she argues, involves prophetic indictment of our shortcomings. And she holds up Dr. King and Abraham Lincoln as models of this work. Kathy makes her point powerfully by noting how changing one letter in a word can make an enormous moral difference. <clears throat> the word condemn, with a D, means to pronounce an adverse judgment on, to express strong disapproval of. That is the job of the prophet. Lincoln condemned slavery, and he was right to do so. Dr. King condemned segregation, discrimination, and economic injustice, and he was right to do so. But there was another side to Lincoln and King, and Kaveny underscores this 
by contrasting the word condemn with a D to the root word of contempt, which is contemn with a T. Uh, this involves holding or treating others, quotes, as of little account or as vile and worthless, as unimportant or of small value. As Kaveny argues, to treat one's political interlocutors as vile or worthless is to risk undermining their equal status as participants in our political community. It is to treat them as unworthy of citizenship, as people who must be pruned from our common endeavor. Uh, Kaveny also sees King and Lincoln as models because well, they, as they called out evil, they maintained a lively sense of humility. Imagine preaching humility at Harvard University. Uh, they understood the limits of their own knowledge and acknowledged their own moral shortcomings. They displayed, as she put it, social humility regarding the status of other peoples, including one's enemies and God's affections. In other words, they didn't consign their foes to hell. Um, each of these closely related approaches suggests, suggests how we might begin the task of condemning evil without deepening our divisions. To remember with Jerry Watts the power of conversion, which requires imaginative engagement with the concerns of others. To remember with Reinhold Niebuhr the importance of seeing our own imperfections and short-sightedness. And to remember with Kathy Cavani that we cannot build a stronger democracy if we treat our opponents as unworthy of a common citizenship. But what of our obligations to fight injustice? I worried as I was writing this talk uh, that I would begin to sound like that telling parody of the liberal who is someone so open-minded that he can't even take his own side in an argument. Um, it's easy uh, to preach the merits of civility from the comfort of affluence. And to put an even finer point on the matter, one can imagine critics fairly pointing out that it is easy for someone who is white and male and straight and native born to miss the urgency of this moment, uh, to play up the need for understanding over the imperative of opposition and resistance to daily injustices. They would argue for the role of dissidents and rebels and prophets. Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of King's great allies who marched with him in Selma, said the prophets saw God not as comfort and security, but as a challenge, an incessant demand. Heschel wrote, while others are callous, and even callous to their callousness, and unaware of their insensitivity, the prophets remain examples of supreme impatience with evil, distracted by neither might nor applause, by neither success nor beauty. Their, insist their intense sensitivity to right and wrong is due to their intense sensitivity to God's concern for right and wrong. They feel fiercely because they hear deeply. We cannot allow a desire to understand and persuade to become an excuse for not feeling fiercely or hearing deeply. Similarly, Dr. King was profoundly impatient with those who criticized his militancy and saw his movement's demonstrations in Birmingham as, as they put it in a letter to him, unwise and untimely. Uh, King uh, wrote back very harshly in his letter from Birmingham jail. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, 
But your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. Lamentably, it is a historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, King went on, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. It is easy, King added, for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. Uh, oppressed people, he declared, cannot remain oppressed forever. Thus did a man resolutely committed to dialogue and nonviolence and conversion nonetheless insist that there were times when militancy is essential, when cooling off periods only chill the struggle for justice, when it is a mistake to heed calls for civility over the cries for relief from oppression. So where does this leave us in our quest to fight injustice in ways that might leave us more rather than less united when the struggle is over and God willing ends in success? <coughs> Let's stipulate following the king of Birmingham jail and invoking President Faust's words again that there should be no backing off from strenuous and unbending opposition to the loathsome demonstrations of hate, hatred and violence. There is uh, so much we need to argue about in politics, openly, civilly, and respectfully. But racism and sexism and nativism and homophobia are unacceptable always and everywhere. But so too are prejudices related to class. We must oppose the bigotry of skin color but we also must oppose the bigotry that denies the wisdom and virtue of those who lack college degrees or large bank accounts. We once celebrated the honor and dignity of manual work of those in the healthcare sector who do not carry the title doctor and of those in the service industry who are not high-tech wizards. We must do so again, yes, through policies that reward hard work that is currently underpaid, but also through a clear national affirmation of the equal dignity of every one of God's children. Some of the ballots ca cast last year for a candidate who spoke in reprehensible terms about our citizens of color, uh, particularly immigrants, were motivated uh, by their own sense of exclusion from a belief that their fellow citizens in our great universities, our cultural institutions, and our prosperous metropolitan areas lacked respect for who they are, what they do, and what they believe. It is essential to the battle of, for social justice that we join together to fight a politics that casts one group's pain against another group's pain. We must heal the overt injuries of race and gender prejudice, but we must also heal the often hidden injuries of class. At the same time, in our quest for mutual understanding, we should not give in to the temptation of a false balance that pretends that both sides are equally guilty of polarizing our national conversation. There is a moral difference between those who exploit prejudice and those who do not. There is a moral difference between the anger of those who suffer and the smug indifference of those who benefit from an existing status quo. Indifference can seem like civility because smugness doesn't need to raise its voice. 
It is, it is satisfied with things exactly as they are. A false equivalent seeks to locate the person embracing it in some metaphysically perfect paradise of moderation as he calls out the extremes to either side of him. But the two sides are not always equally extreme, and I would certainly assert that this is true today. Dr. King, for one, took great offense as seeing his nonviolent movement for justice labeled extreme by moderate clergy who sought to distance themselves from his struggle. The rhetorical power of King's rebuke to them in his Birmingham letter should remind us of the need to ponder carefully what we are saying when we use the word extreme. Was Jesus Christ uh, an extreme, was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them uh, which dis uh, despite, despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? And Abraham Lincoln, the nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be, King wrote. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? These are fair questions in his time and any time. If moderation in politics can sometimes be an evasion then, it can also be an admirable personal virtue and we need discernment to understand when it applies and when it is falling into the sins that Martin Luther King described. If moderation is simply splitting differences with no, regards to outcome, no regard for outcomes and no regard for justice, or as in King's example, to the actual content of the two opposing positions, it is no moral guide at all. But moderation is powerfully useful if it involves in Niburian fashion checks on our own self-interested passions or on our arrogance or on our tendency to demonize not only actual demons, and yes, they are out there, uh, but absolutely anyone who takes a different view from our own. I want to close by asking why even bother to engage in the circle squaring that I have undertaken tonight between the need for militancy and even resistance and the imperative of healing our divisions. When I described what I intended to do in this talk, a friend said that I was proposing that people needed to be loving fighters. Uh, she was kind in saying that she liked the idea, but it also sounded like a contradiction in terms or perhaps the name of a failed rock band. Um, but I see no other way. We need to take on not only prejudice and division, but also tendencies toward autocracy and authoritarianism, visible in efforts to sow confusion about the truth, demonize the free press, attack an independent judiciary, delegitimize and threaten to jail political opponents, and undermine lawful inquiries into a leader's possible abuses. Vigilance against these things is not alarmism. This is a time that requires friends of freedom to speak up. Yet as we fight the daily battles, we must remember that our purpose is to assert the existence of a common good. And the common good cannot even be defined, let alone achieved, in a society racked by deep division, mistrust, and mutual recrimination. 
In a way, our side needs unity even more than the other side does. The great reforming movements in our nation's history were brought about through a combination of struggle and community building. Dr. King described his goal not as the domination of one group over another, he was fighting domination. He spoke of creating a beloved community where all would sit together at the table of brotherhood. This still must be our purpose. When my friends uh, Norm Ornstein, Tom Mann, and I were writing our recently published book that David kindly mentioned, we had long conversations about what we should call it. And we set, when we settled on one nation after Trump, we realized that we owed a debt to the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, it's lost in the mists of history that the pledge was written in 1892 by a progressive, actually a Christian socialist minister named Francis Bellamy. But when you think about the last seven words of the pledge, and recall that God was not added until 1954, but when you think about the last seven words of the pledge, this is less surprising. We commit ourselves, when we recite it, to one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Notice that the idea that we are indivisible is intimately related to our commitment to liberty and justice for all. Healing our country requires that we rededicate ourselves to the hope that we can overcome our divisions because this is finally the only path to achieving liberty and justice for all. Thank you very much.